When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On this Wednesday morning, thanks to Vossi and Brandy for setting the scene this morning. As you can gather, there's a lot around, both weather-wise and sporting-wise. Wherever you tuned in on SEN across the network, hope you're having a good start to this Wednesday morning at 11.70am in Sydney and our greater area around that, especially down towards the south and southwest at the moment, and that's actually going to swing around and hit from the north, according to the Bureau. The weather is going to be pretty nasty, so tops of 26 degrees, but up to 30 millimetres of rain, a 95% chance of rain becoming less likely at night, they're saying. The chance of a thunderstorm possibly severe, and winds will be north northeasterly up to 30 kilometres an hour, but there are bigger storms around for the rest of today and into tomorrow coming at us from all angles. I actually went into the BOM website this morning. They do a little YouTube preview where you can read the weather forecast or you can actually go and watch the forecaster talk talk through what's happening and what's going to happen. And essentially there are some really big storms ahead and around us. Speaking of big, well, the big show has done it again. Glenn Maxwell has done it again, and we'll get into the details of that. But straight off the bat, so to speak, this morning, I want you to tell me who is our biggest show on the world sporting stage? Because Glenn Maxwell, with the huge audience that he's playing to, and, of course, what he did in the ODI World Cup, would you'd have to say in the last couple of months has had more eyeballs on him in a sporting sense, than probably any other Australian athlete at the moment. Maybe in Formula One, Dan Ricciardo and Oscar Piastri have been in that level. And, of course, the other Aussies in the mix as well. But he's got a huge following in India, of course. So to have, have the others, Glenn Maxwell and David Warner. But who is our biggest show? There was a time back before social media where if you went to another part of the world and they said to you, oh, you're an Australian they just hit you straight up with, say, Greg Norman, for instance, a global game in golf, and that's what Australia was known for, who Australia was known for. And now you think of the athletes plus the exposure plus everything else that goes with it, and it does beg the question off the back of the big show, who's our biggest show? Now, get this, in a social media snapshot that Tommy and I did this morning, just on Instagram alone, if we look at the amount of followers and Whilst you and I, most of my audience will go, oh, really? Is it? it is important and it does give you a good litmus test, I guess, of exactly who's where and doing what on the world stage. David Warner's got 10.6 million Instagram followers. 
Daniel Ricciardo's got 8.9 million. So they're way ahead of the rest of just some of the names that we were looking at this morning. Nick Kyrgios, 4.2 million. It also goes to who's active on social media. And Davey Warner's very, very active. And so too is Dan Ricciardo. So cricket, a big game, but not a fully global game. Tennis, a global game. Formula One, very big all around the world and off the back of drive to survive. Then we've got soccer. Sam Kerr's got 1.8 million Instagram followers, which is ahead of Paddy Cummins. Then you go to our golfers at the moment. We did a quick check. Cameron Smith with just under 400,000. And then you go to our footy players in terms of NRL. Reese Walsh is about the biggest that we could find Quickly this morning, 417,000 followers on Insta. So when you put all that into the mix, the global stage, how popular they are out there in social media, how much they generate publicly and publicity for their sport, who do you reckon is our biggest show? If you logged into another country tomorrow and you said, hey, I'm an Aussie, who do you reckon they're going to identify you with in a sporting sense? Text or call this morning... I want to build a top three, and I wonder how different it is or how many names that we're not thinking about there that you can help us along the way with. Who is Australia's biggest show in world sport? 0457 736 736 is the text line. As you know, 1300 01 1170 if you want to debate that one on the hotline. Alistair Dobson is the general manager of the BBL and WBBL. He'll be my guest this morning. Smithy's back over in SENZ as uh, host of the mornings, of course. So we'll catch up with Smithy and talk cricket. Jess Sergis, who's recently re-signed and extended that deal with the Sydney Roosters, will be on the line. And so too Sydney FC defender Joel King, which is interesting. I'll have a chat with Joel about this sin bin rule that the boys were talking about this morning. It just sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? A yellow card and then there's a red card or what sits in between in football an orange card, perhaps, with 10 minutes on the sidelines. So we'll cover that. So Glenn Maxwell, 104 not out of 48 balls, eight fours, eight sixes. And the way he did it was very Glenn Maxwell-like. He got to 147 deliveries. And off the last four balls, he went six, four, four, four. It's his fourth T20 century. And it's the joint fastest for an Australian batsman alongside Aaron Finch and Josh Inglis. So India three for 222, Australia five for 225. So 447 runs scored in this match. Travis Head was there with 35 off 18 balls and he'll be the last man standing after all of the other ODI World Cup players return home and they deserve the break. In fact, Glenn Maxwell would he- will head home. Marcus Stoinis, Josh Inglis, Sean Abbott, Steve Smith, Adam Zampa also back. And some of those guys have been on the road for a long, long time. Matt Wade, in charge of the Australian team, had this to say, not only off the back of Maxwell, but let's not forget there's a series at play here. I mean, we've sort of brushed over this because a lot of people are saying, why are we doing it? It's a five-match series, and this win means that Australia stay alive in that series. India now lead 2-1. Quite a few changes happening. Um, a lot of the guys that played the World Cup are now going to head home, and um, we've got some fresh faces coming in. So, um, 
you know, we're excited to see a few younger players play in India and um, I think, you know, some fresh legs and um, some fresh energy is going to be big for us over the next two games. But, um, yeah, I think we've just got to contain with the ball. If we can keep the scores around 200, if the wicket's are going to play like that, then um, we'll give our batters every chance to, to kind of chase it. But, um, yeah, we're, we're confident that the guys that are going to come in are going to introduce a, another level of energy um, and, uh, yeah, we're hoping that'll be enough. So a big change coming. Next match is Friday morning at uh, same time. So half past 12, just after midnight, start on Friday morning. Meanwhile, changes could be coming to the Australian Test team. Now, we played you a bit of Andrew McDonald and the chat that he had with Jared Waitley yesterday around the David Warner situation, but it does pose the big question about what happens after. So AD, after David. So you have a look at the openers who are in contention and the Prime Minister's 11 could be crucial here. That'll be first up. Marcus Harris, Matt Renshaw, Cameron Bancroft. Or does Marnus Labuschagne move up to open? Steve Smith goes to three. Cameron Green comes back in the side at maybe number four. Or does Travis Head go straight up and open? Or does Alex Carey open and Green slots lower down in the order? The Australian selectors will name their squad for the first test against Pakistan next week. From the reports this morning and overnight, 14-man squad, Cam Green likely to be picked but will be 12th man and appears as though David Warner will be selected for the Pakistan test matches and therefore bow out as a test player with his final match at the SCG. So some questions here for Australia are quite interesting. The options are there for opener. But do they make a shift with an incumbent batsman or do they look to a new start at the top once David Warner moves on? But it would be a new start with three players who've been there before in the test arena. Marcus Harris has played 14 tests. So too has Matt Renshaw and Cam Bancroft played just the 10 tests before all that went down. But he's back. And then what to do with Cameron Green? 24 test matches. He played in the fourth test in the Ashes. But now he's been just put aside for the minute. I mean, they call him a generational player and you'll hear from Andrew McDonald in just a sec. Do they keep him waiting now that Mitch Marsh is re-established or do they make room for him to return by shuffling the order around? He averages 34.9 batting at number six and 27 batting at number seven. Or do they throw a real curveball? We love a curveball on the show and make Cameron Green a test opener. I don't think that's likely at the moment. But you can see that the options there are varied. And does it go to trying to get Cam Green back into the team sooner rather than later? Does it go to picking the best team, which is where they'll start? Does it go to one eye on what happens after David Warner departs the test team? Let's have a listen to Australian coach Andrew McDonald on that issue in particular around Cameron Green and his spot in the batting lineup, here's Andrew McDonald talking to Jared Waitley on SEN. What does you know, Cam Green's future look like in the Test team? Is it a matter of waiting for for Mitch um, to, to finish, or is it could there be another spot that opens up over time? And look, he's batted six most of his Test career, but he's been a fantastic number four for for WA, and I think averages close to fifty in in Shield cricket. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's always the the idea that you can potentially shift the order to make room um, and put your best six batters or what you see as your best six batters in a certain order and we've seen that 
in Australian cricket before. We've seen, I think, David Boone went from three to opening. I think Justin Langer went from three to opening. Shane Watson went from six to opening, if I'm, I'm, I'm right. So there has been um, the ability to reshuffle and, and for that to be successful. But as I said, we'll pick the best 11 for that first test match in Perth. So I guess it'll come down to that. Is it a reshuffle or is it a, a selection um, scenario that they're looking further down the track to try and bet in somebody? So that first test against Pakistan is in Perth. December 14, that will start. Before that, we've got the Prime Minister's 11 at Manuka Oval, December 6 through to 9, so next Wednesday down there in Canberra. So the Pakistan series, Perth, MCG, SCG. And all things being equal the way that they're playing out, the SCG test will be Davy Warner's last for Australia. Then they go into the West Indies, and this is where they need to start thinking about those changes. The Windies at Adelaide and then the Gabba as well. And Andrew McDonald just mentioned Sheffield Shield. Well, yesterday, New South Wales ended up 7 for 178 against Tasmania at the SCG. Ollie Davies is there, 58 not out. They were sent in to bat by Tassie, and it looks as though rain will play a part. Sam Constance with 10 on debut, and Lawrence Neal-Smith, 5 for 44. But did you see Peter Hanscom refusing to walk in the match between Victoria and South Australia in Adelaide? So he was given out after a catch at third slip by South Australian skipper Jake Lehman. Now, when he came in, Victoria were in all sorts. They were two for four. While he was there, Will Pekofsky got out. They were three for 21. Then Hanscom edges to the slips. He was given out. They celebrated. It was a sharp catch. He stood his ground. They showed the replays, but, of course, there's no DRS. But he was given out, and he stood his ground, stood his ground, and then the umpires eventually had to tell him to go. So he was saying that Lehman had caught or taken the catch and that he's, he hadn't taken it cleanly, essentially. It's a, it was a tight one, but Hanscom was clearly given out and the South Australian fielders clearly said it was out and he didn't want to go. A bizarre situation. So then they were four for 29. He, were, he was gone for seven. They were four for 29, Victoria. And then Sam Harper comes in and hits 101 not out of 66 balls to bring them back to five for 187. Third fastest century in Shield history. His ton actually came off 64 deliveries. So some bizarre stuff happening in Sheffield Shield. In the WBBL last night, the Brisbane Heat knocked the Sydney Thunder out, so they won by 44 runs. That means that the Heat will go into tonight's challenger against the Perth Scorchers over there at the Wacker and the Adelaide Strikers waiting in the wings. Rugby League, of course, as we told you yesterday, the deal between the Bulldogs and the Sharks and Connor Tracy. Um, we can go through all of this again and get your thoughts on the Bulldogs signings, but the article that was written uh, in tandem by Michael Carianis, David Riccio and Brent Reid, the opening paragraph, I reckon, has absolutely nailed this position and, and what's happening here. Canterbury's continued the NRL's biggest recruitment drive and Cronulla has emerged as the new sleeping giant of the free agency market. So Canterbury continuing to just pick apart the signings list and add and add and add and extend and extend. And meanwhile, Cronulla over there just freeing up some space and freeing up some cap space to make sure that they've got the cash when other players appear on the market. And there are other players out there ready to appear on the market. So a really good summary in the first paragraph. 
The big drive continues at the Bulldogs and the big sleeping giant is awakened, awakened at the Cronulla Sharks in terms of free agency. The Australian Open starts tomorrow at the Australian and the Lakes. Some really good pairings, but I wonder what the weather's going to do here to the Australian Open. Let's hope that it doesn't bother it. We've got the two courses at the Lakes tomorrow. Early will be Minwoo Lee, Cameron Smith and Rukuya Hoshino. So they'll get away really early, just after 7 o'clock. A little bit later, we'll have Mark Leishman and Cam Davis. And in between that, Minji Lee and Steph Kiriaku, who we spoke to yesterday. Meanwhile, at the Australian, how's this for a first round pairing at midday. Adrian Naronk, the defending champion. Adam Scott, the 2009 champion and runner-up last year. And Matt Jones, a two-time winner of the Australian Open and also a previous runner-up, all in the same group together. And at 12.22, Aaron Baddeley and Lucas Herbert will be part of a group. Remember, Aaron Baddeley won it as an amateur in 1999 and then backed up the year after as a professional. So he's a two-time Australian Masters champ. And I'll get your thoughts, too, around the reports this morning that Joseph Suali'i could make his Wallabies debut as soon as November next year. So once the deal with Rugby League finishes and the deal with Rugby Union starts, he may well be pitchforked into a game playing for Australia. Could be, maybe, if they decide to hand him that Wallabies jersey. If, if the Roosters made the grand final... And the Wallabies decided to play him in what would be the first match. And if we have to go, we have to go off a couple of years ago of the dates of the spring tour. There could be less than a month in between playing his last NRL game and his first game as a Wallaby, which would be an extraordinary, extraordinary position. 0457 736 736. So this morning, we want to know who do you think is Australia's biggest show? in world sport one th- world sport it's got to be a global game one 1170 is our open line number plenty of texts coming through on 0457 736 736 and the makeup possibly of the australian team after we wrap up the pakistan series after that series is done the makeup of your australian team at the top of the order once davy warner Moves on. Uh, We've got all that in front of us right here on this Wednesday morning on SEN. 11.70 a.m. in Sydney, your home of sport. Welcome back on the text line. Uh, Ben Simmons says the big G would have had a bigger social media following, although I'm not sure as an Aussie whether you'd want to be associated with him. Well, we we did a quick check. So 7.5. And we're only going Insta, so we haven't gone, um, you know, plus Twitter, plus this, plus TikTok, all of that kind of stuff. It's just simple Instagram numbers on this one, but 7.5 million is is absolutely massive. The biggest one that we could find this morning just on Insta is 10.6 million followers for David Warner. And it didn't surprise me that Daniel Ricciardo has a big number as well, 8.9. I mean, number one, he's, he's, he's playing essentially a global sport. Number two, he's very active in that space and um, is very attractive to that space. Matt says, I was in a New York Mets game. In May, the Norwegian fellow sitting next to me said the Australian sportsman he knew of was Bozza, <laughs> Mark Bosnich. So you've got yourself a Norwegian Bozza fan at a baseball game. I like it. I absolutely love it. Uh, in terms of the cricket situation, I don't see the point of shuffling 
reshuffling the order to fit in a kid that averages 35, especially when you have Cam Bancroft piling runs on in shield and we also have the best three, four, five in the world. This is the interesting part because does it come to a reshuffle? Do, do they look at the scenario in terms of, and I've listened and, and read what Andrew McDonald has said about this, do they look at it as this is our opportunity to to work Cameron Green back into the system because they've got him there long term. He's going to come back into that Australian test team. So is it about reshuffling there? That would play part of it, you'd think, or is it about finding the best opener to replace David Warner once he moves on? And you're right, you've got other players there who are piling on the runs and we've also got other players in their positions at the moment who arguably are the best in the world. So that's going to be the interesting scenario. Do they go for that reshuffle or do they go for a pure selection? And the reshuffle might be part of the reason to... I was going to say blood, but he's already been blooded, but get Cameron Green back into that system, which is only a matter of time. Dan says it's got to be Renshaw. He's five years younger than the other two. And Matt Renshaw's been there, hasn't he? Good morning, Matty. Getting in early, surely Sam Kerr is up there on the list of the Australian's biggest shows. Yes, biggest show in the world, biggest sporting show. Emma McKeon is the big show in Aussie sport. Well, yeah, Olympics, obviously, global sport, swimming, global sport. Emma McKeon, another one from Dasher in Matraville, says exactly the same thing. I don't know how active, Tommy, you might want to check those numbers. And by the way, we're not solely judging this on your, on your Instas, but <laughs> it is a good guideline. Don't forget, uh, we're going to throw that out on our Twitter page as well. So on X, um, just search up Mornings with Matt White and we'll put a poll on there to see your top three or another. At the moment, our top three options are Sam Kerr, Daniel Ricciardo, Nick Kyrgios. If you've got another option, you can comment on the poll for that one. But we're looking for Australia's biggest show at the moment in world sport. And I find it a really interesting debate if we do it under the frame of 2023 with social media and 24-7 coverage and we can get every game of every sport right into our living rooms at all times versus, say, 20, 30 years ago where we didn't have all of that and we had somebody like Greg Norman, for instance, who was absolutely attached to Australia in so many ways. I mean, he was the Paul Hogan of sport for a while there. Um, so it's a really different time. Absolutely understand that, and there is different criteria to judge it on. But we're starting to get the names that are popping up at the same stage. So Sam Kerr, for sure, um, Nick Kyrgios, for sure, Dan Ricardo for sure, and others coming in as well. We'll head to the news. Alistair Dobson will join me. We'll talk BBL, see how they're going in terms of trying to keep international players into the men's BBL system, which starts very, very soon, and the WBBL into the final two matches of the tournament. Good morning to you, mate. Thanks for your time. Busy time too. Yeah, good morning, Matt. It certainly is a busy time. We've um, obviously enjoyed uh, some World Cup success overseas, but the, the, the WBBL is in full swing and, and about to uh, come to a conclusion and the BBL's right right on our doorstep. So it's a pretty exciting time. So we had the Brisbane Heat going into the Challengers uh, final tonight. So they're going to have to back up over there at the Wacker. And then we've got the Adelaide Strikers waiting at Adelaide Oval on Saturday night. What's been your take of the WBBL season? Um, Sydney Sixers, just from our Sydney audience perspective, 
Sydney Sixers had a, a season to forget and the Thunder turned their fortunes massively around. So in terms of the Sydney market, it must have been a, a mixed bag for you. Yeah, it's, it's a really competitive competition every year. It's, it's the best cricket league in the world for women with the best players uh, coming from all over the world to play. And the, and the competition is really strong. And, and I think we've seen, uh, you know, the, the, the best teams rise to the top again. The, the Sixers were thereabouts for, for parts of the competition and, and just couldn't quite uh, put it together at the end. And then, yeah, the Thunder started with a with a bang, but um, had dropped off in the in the last few weeks. As I said, it's um it's a really tough competition. You've got to be on, on your game every Every night you come out to play and it's, um, yeah, I think the final on Saturday night, whoever the strikers end up playing, it's going to be a beauty. In terms of crowds, Alistair, where are you at with the WBBL? It's been hard to get crowd numbers and we've seen some matches where there haven't been many people at all in the stands. Is there a bit of a hangover, do you think, of the amount of cricket that's been on this year? You had some good numbers at the stadium series, but what's, what's the view from headquarters about the numbers? You'd always like more. Yeah, I think crowds are one metric we, we look at alongside TV audiences and, and the sentiment of the players and the quality of the cricket. I think we're always chasing as many people coming to our games as we can. What we know is when people come and see the WBBL, they just see how amazing it is and, and the quality of the cricket. And, and our crowds are up year on year, so that's a really exciting and positive trend for us. I think the stadium series games we played on the weekend just gone were, again, a, a good indication that when... We put on big events that that have the full bells and whistles of a big bash experience. People love to come along and watch it. I think we work we work closely with our clubs on on building crowds. There are games played during the week. It's the nature of the of the WBBL or the big bash broadly that um, we, we don't just confine games to weekends. So when we're playing games midweek, there's always a different a different challenge and a different proposition. But by and large, we, we're pretty optimistic and confident of our crowds this year. Is there any way, or is there any thought process around? WBBL plus BBL being in the same space in the calendar. I mean, I I just cannot comprehend the the way that you manage to deal with your calendar spaces because the world of cricket is is jam packed. I mean, you're tripping over it yourself. So, is that separation to you important to have the women's BBL and the men's BBL separate, or is it a a nature of the beast of the scheduling around world cricket? Yeah, it is important that they're separate. I think the first four years of the WBBL uh, that was actually aligned to the to the men's competition played throughout December and January, and it was WBBL 05, um, you know, obviously completing 09 at the moment, uh, 05 that we separated the competition. That was a strategic move to, to be able to create some clean air for the, for the WBBL to thrive and play in prime time and, and own a, a big chunk of the cricket calendar outright. I think when, you, when you're playing throughout December and January, obviously there's... There's a lot of other cricket happening around Australia, whether that's test matches and, and men's BBL. So to be able to place the WBBL uh, in its own window, uh, in its own right, and be able to focus on that, whether that's TV, marketing, promotion, uh, and, and bringing our fans along, it's, it's a very strategic move for us. I think, obviously, the, the, the challenge is trying to bring people into uh, the, the Big Bash environment a little bit earlier than perhaps they have historically. So um, it's a strategic move. One, we think is the right one, um, but obviously it comes with, with ongoing uh, work and effort to drive the crowds there. Mm. And you're right, the professionalism of the WBBL 
um, league itself has been extraordinary, and it's a great night out, isn't it? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. It's a great arvo. It's a great night out, and if you can do it on a school night, it's even better. Um, obviously, if you can got, get the time on the weekend, then they get the crowds there, and the stadium series certainly showed that. So we've got the final two matches of WBBL, and then you'll quickly swing around into BBL next Thursday. I wanted to ask you about where you're at in terms of trying to ensure the international players can come here and can stay here for an extended time. So we saw with Harry Brook pulling out um, last year, it was Liam Livingston. You're not going to be able to control this, even though the league's had a crack at it by lifting the platinum level payments. What, what else can you do? Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the realities of, of the modern cricket landscape that players have multiple opportunities and lots of opportunities and multiple commitments. And and every every T20 league around the world is is balancing. Uh, I, I guess, the structure of their own competition and trying to make sure the best players can play. And, and we're no different. I think salary cap is one. Um, we, we Obviously, players love coming and playing in Australia and playing in the best venues and on the best wickets in, in really good cricket. I think for us, it's about making sure the experience continues to be as good as it can be alongside, alongside obviously, competitive salaries. And then I think, ultimately... Players are always going to choose their national commitments if that's if that's where they're selected. No different to the Australian players in, in a big bash season when you know when they when they're called up for test duties, they they uh, they're quick to jump in obviously at that opportunity. So it's an ongoing challenge. It's one that every every league faces, and I think for us it's about also making sure that um, the local heroes we saw last year in the in the BBL final in Perth it was actually two local local heroes that won the game for the Scorchers. So having the best players from around the world is is one part of it, but making sure and, and, and bringing and building up heroes from, from our own backyard is, is equally what the Big Bash is known for. And I, I saw in the last couple of days that Steve Smith is going to commit to Sydney Sixers when he can. The lessons that were learned over last season, especially with somebody like Stephen Smith and the way that he performed, which was fantastic, um, I, I guess behind the scenes there was a lot of a lot of headaches around that, just just by nature of the way that it panned out. Not not bad headaches, but ones that you had to solve and were were clearly worth the pain. Is that the way that you viewed it? And, and you'll try and get players like Stephen Smith and like Marnus Labuschagne, get them back into as much BBL as you can. Oh, for sure, and especially after the the, the heroics over in India during the World Cup. I mean, the best players from around the world are important, but having you know Australian heroes playing the BBL. You know, we'll see Glenn Maxwell also on opening night in, in Brisbane. And having those players play in the competition is is un, unreal for us. We saw that, as you said, last year with, with Steve with a couple of back-to-back centuries. And, and, and we did a lot of work in the off-season with, with our players and the ACA around a new MOU. And, and that came with it some a, a new revised contracting model that has made it easier for clubs to contract CA players or Australian players into their lists. And, and Steve's one of them with... With uh, obviously with the Sydney Sixers, so um, we're always trying to free up either the calendar and/or our contracting rules to make sure those players can play. We'll, we'll get a little taste of it this year. They're, they're, the Australian Test summer goes right through to the end of January, so we'll see a taste of it. And then next year, um, the, the, the revised calendar we have, we'll see a lot of a lot more Australian player involvement uh, in next summer. But uh, a little taste of it this year, and we can't wait to see Steve out there next Friday night in Sydney um, against the Renegades. Absolutely. So it starts the Thursday before that, of course, the night before that, Brisbane Heat v Melbourne Stars, as you mentioned with Glenn Maxwell, the, the biggest show in town at the moment who's absolutely firing. So they've done a lot of marketing for you, haven't they? They've, they've done the right thing leading into this summer of BBL. Um, and, of course, you've got two more to go in the WBBL. So it's a really busy time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of WBBL, and we look forward to touching base through the men's league.
Yeah, anytime. Thanks for the chat. Alistair Dobson there, the WBBL and BBL general manager. So it's a, a lot a lot to pull together, isn't it? I don't envy the task there and they do it well. It's there there are so many moving parts in the world of cricket and you just take a look at what they had to try and do with um, the salary cap, like they say, with the memorandum of understanding, so the deal with the Cricket Australia players, trying to get these players integrated into the BBL as much as they can. They're the big stars of the show, quite literally, um, and they are doing a lot of the a lot of the marketing by going out there and winning everything in front of them. So in WBBL terms, we've got the Brisbane Heat backing up tonight after their win over the Sydney Thunder, so they'll take on the Perth Scorchers. That's the challenger. Um, the wacker looked a little bit ordinary around the around the square last night as well. And then we've got the final at the Adelaide Oval, which will always look great. The Adelaide Strikers against the winner of tonight's Perth v Brisbane match. We will take a break. 0457 736 736 is the text line. Your texts and calls coming up after this. Welcome back. Uh, keep your thoughts coming on our text line this morning. So the Bulldogs scenario, as I mentioned Canterbury as Michael Carianis, David Riccio and Brent Reid put it perfectly, continue their biggest recruitment drive or the game's biggest recruitment drive while Cronulla continue to emerge as the new sleeping giant of the free agency market. So on the Canterbury side, Connor Tracy, three-year deal with the Bulldogs until the end of 2026 and it's a swap with junior Michael Gabriel who will now head to the Sharks. So in terms of the signings for 2024 and beyond, Stephen Crichton, until the end of 2027. Josh Curran, until the end of 2025. Same for Drew Hutchison, Kurt Mann, Jamin Salmon, Blake Taff. Now Connor Tracy until the end of 2026. Jake Turpin, Bronson Sherry and Poasa Farmacilli until the end of 2025. All of those three until the end of 2025. So I want to know from Doggies fans... Are you a fan of this recruitment drive? I mean, I can't imagine too many would be saying no. Yes, you can break down what players and what positions and all that kind of stuff. And do you think that these are the signings that will lift you from where you finished the season just gone, which was, what was it, 15th in the end? So is this the kind of signing recruitment drive that you think and are they the kind of names that you think are exactly what you need because the recruitment drives one thing and then the players that you bring in and why you're bringing them in and all that kind of stuff it's a it's a very very impressive lineup of players so dogs fans let me know your thoughts around that now that we're starting to piece together this incredible list and out of all of that who do you reckon's the most important signing i mean you could argue you know, who's the biggest name in that signing? And Stephen Crichton sits on the top of the list. But who's the most important signing, do you think, to the club and to your fortunes as well? Who's going to play the most important role in all of that and what they're building out there at the Bulldogs? We've been following the Jacob Saifidi signature, uh, where it's going to land. And, of course, the Newcastle Knights emerged as, again, being where he will stay. And that's happened. So re-signed until the end of 2027. Jacob Saifidi, 142 matches. The Adam Fenua Blake watch, <laughs> AFB watch. We're probably going to have to have ourselves a little regular segment day by day where we see what's happening next. I mean, we're, like I said yesterday, we're narrowed down to Sydney clubs, but News Corp's reporting this morning that there's going to be a tour 
over the Christmas period of the Bulldogs, the Tigers and the Dragons for Adam Fanua Blake. The roadshow. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. So maybe, maybe, I mean, look, it's serious stuff. He's going to come back and he's a, he's a wanted player, right? And there's clubs there that want to reach out and obviously want him as part of their squads. And this is what you have to do. This is where the player has the power. He's going to be released by the Warriors at the end of 24. All things, again, being equal, he should still be hot property, but he can now start to tour around. So if you're a club who's interested in Adam Fanua Blake, what's one thing you reckon that you could do to get him across the line? Because you can show the facilities here and you can show the facilities there and you can say this is what we're building here and this is our great coffee shop and these are the, you know, all that kind of stuff. But is there something left field that you could do? Could you do a Benji Marshall a la Jerome Luai situation and just turn up at the house, you know, with a, with a bouquet of flowers or something? <laughs> is there, what could you do? Is there something else that you could offer? Has to be within the restraints of everything that we know about the NRL and the salary cap and third party and all that kind of stuff. But give me a left fielder. Your club wants to sign Adam Fanua Blake. You've got exactly the same money as everyone else. You've got exactly the same hopes of a premiership and maybe the same facilities or there or thereabouts. What else can you do? What can you offer in your backyard? If you're the Dogs, if you're the Tigers, if you're the Dragons, if you're another Sydney club, let me know. Meanwhile, it's also being reported that Jerome Luai did meet with the Tigers yesterday. So there's a four-year deal reportedly on the table worth in excess of $4.5 million for Luai as of late last week. So that's another one of those. Watch this space. And just on the scenario of Joseph Suali'i, so we can dig into the nuts and bolts of this, but the reports in the Herald this morning, Phil War has confirmed that the Suali'i deal will go ahead. He said, we're committed to Joseph. He's coming in November and hopefully for the spring tour next year, so 2024. We need to deliver on what we say we're going to deliver on, and that's a big part of it, as in we said we're going to deliver somebody like Joseph Suali'i back to Rugby Union, and that's a big part of it. So he could make his Wallabies debut in their November tour of the UK and Ireland next year, with the bigger picture being the British and Irish Lions tour and then, of course, the World Cup. So a long-term deal. There was also talk, too, around Joe Schmidt being earmarked as the next Wallabies coach after an Argentinian newspaper reported that Michael Checker wants to stay with the Pumas until the next World Cup in 2027. So he's going over to speak to them about all that. And I like Phil War's response on this. He said, look, it could be. It could be anyone. The head coach is important, but actually the head coach's ability to attract the best talent in the coaching team and the management team. So a lot more to it from Phil War. Let me know your thoughts on that one. 0457 736 736 is the text line. Wherever you tuned in via the SEN app, of course, the weather will be a big talking point around the east coast of Australia over today and tomorrow. It looks as though it's um, not hitting the Sydney area as hard or is not going to hit as hard as what they've been predicting, but there's still a long way to go in terms of the severe weather warnings. So chance of showers and possible storm and the the thunderstorms could bring for the northern parts of New South Wales giant uh, hail. <laughs> and they're the words from the Bureau. So I don't mess around on that one. I had a quick check of the 
radar and a lot of it is centred around on the southern tip of Australia. So Victoria in particular copying it and along the south coast as well. So let's hope that it uh, doesn't get too bad. But there are warnings around for New South Wales. Pretty easy to find them. But 26 is the expected top today. Back off tomorrow in terms of the amount of rain, 28 degrees. And then at the back end of the week, 28 and mostly sunny on Friday as well. If you missed any of our first hour, you can catch up on our Mornings with Matt White podcast and also go to our Twitter or X page, Mornings with Matty White. And you can cast your vote on the biggest show on the world stage when it comes to Australian sport. Used to be, I reckon, quite an easy or much more simpler process to decide. But these days with instant access to everything, everywhere, every minute, plus social media in the mix, we're starting to get a big bunch of names that perhaps we wouldn't think of. The Logan Warrior says, what about Ange Postacoglu? I mean, you think of the reach that he's got and the love affair that everyone's got with him, especially at Tottenham. Greg says, every time Ange opens his mouth, the football world goes nuts. If it isn't Ange, then it should be. Yeah, didn't think of Ange Postacoglu in that scenario. Maybe a bit awkward, says Steve, but Josh Giddy is a standout, certainly on the international basketball and American basketball stage, and we all know what's going on there at the moment. But you're right, uh, in terms of social media following, he's nowhere near, say, David Warner, who's got 10 million Insta followers. How would Casey Stoner rate, says Nathan? I would say at the moment, not highly. Um, when he was at his peak, absolutely. But he, he just sort of drifted off by his own accord into the background. Two-time world champion, certainly at his peak, would have been right up there in terms of global athletes representing Australia on the big stage. The Ipswich Tiger and a few others have said Alexander Volkanovsky will have to be there somewhere. Well, the Volks got 1.9 million followers out there in social media and Instagram. Um, but you're right. He is jumping into a lot of lists here. There's another one here saying, uh, yeah, Alexander Volkanovsky, Sam Kerr and Tim Zhu. I don't know if Tim's at that stage just yet. There was... Another one here said, yes, I was in the USA about this time last year on an NFL-NBA junket. Every time a Yank realised I was Australian, they all wanted to talk about the Volk. And that's where we're trying to get to. So we can look at all of these metrics, all of the numbers, and we can say, oh, he's got this many followers and he's got that many followers, but nothing better than research on the ground. And what do they say when you say you're an Aussie? Well, in your case... It's about the Volk. Read the dogs. The only thing you should be asking, says Paul, is how they signed 13 players and how no other CEO could not. Those questions have been abounding. They're putting together quite a list. Simon, the pie man. The dogs can sign as many backs as they like. They're all very serviceable and are clearly there to add depth to the squad. However, with the extent of their forward pack consisting of Max King and Ryan Sutton, we ain't going anywhere. All we can do is have faith that Gus has a plan. I guess you can only sign what's available. Well, what about the question that I posed to you? Who's the most important signing here? Who's the most important piece of this puzzle that's coming together? It's not overdone done with yet. But who do you think is the most important part? Scuba Steve goes straight to the top and goes away from the playing group and says, without doubt, Cameron Serraldo will play the biggest part. His team selection will be crucial. And that's a good shout, Scuba Steve. I totally agree with that one. 
Maddie, looking at the Bulldogs, it's good but not great. Too many utility players, not much depth depth up front. No more Pangai Jr., no more Luke Thompson, who did nothing uh, anyway, he says, LOL. But I feel they need more in the forwards, which has been a recurring theme. No doubt about that. Um, but again, like we say, it's a fairly impressive list and they managed to get it all together. Now, on the Joseph Suali'i thing, just, just for just for argument's sake... We decided to have a little look-see at how it could play could play out next year. So we're going to play the assumption here that Joseph Suali finishes his rugby league contract with the twenty in the twenty twenty four season, and then of course he'll be on the spring tour for the Wallabies to start his life in rugby union with his new employers, Rugby Australia. So here's how it could play out, and the one thing we haven't found and. Listeners, you're the best. Correct us if we're wrong, but we haven't found the dates for the spring tour yet. I don't think they've been locked in. But if we go back to the last spring tour that they did, of course, it was a World Cup year just gone. So in 2022, Australia played its first match of the spring tour against Scotland on October the 30th. So let's just call it November, right? The start of November. If the Roosters made the grand final in 2024 and Joseph Suali is there... They would play their last game on the 6th of October 2024. So let's then say that the first spring tour game of the Wallabies is at the latest 1st of November, first week in November. So that's less than a month. <laughs> if they missed the finals, the Roosters, his last game would be September 6th, so a month before. So it would be two months in between transitioning from being a full-time rugby league player in the NRL to possibly representing the Wallabies. And then we were trying to think about, well, when did you play your last game of rugby union? Now, Joseph Suali is probably about the only one that can answer this unless someone else knows, but he graduated from King's College in 2021, but he did make his NRL debut that year as well. So at least three full years at the moment without playing rugby union at that kind of level. So it's, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, he's an extraordinary talent, and this is how it works. They sign up these players, and they're not there to make up the numbers of Joseph Suali on four or five million dollars in a deal. They're there to play for the Wallabies. But how do you feel about that? Because we've been through this scenario before, Lottie Takiri, Wendell Saylor, Matt Rogers, for instance. We've been through the scenario before where you come into the Wallabies uh, setup as a signing. And essentially, you're handed a Wallabies jumper. That's how it works, for good or bad. Quite incredible. one three hundred oh one eleven seventy is the open line number. Gee, there's a lot going on in the world of cricket. A lot's been happening and a lot's still ahead of us. I'm pleased to say that Ian Smith is on the line from New Zealand. Smithy, it's great to have you back. I'm sure I'm not the first and won't be the last to say, gee, we love the commentary throughout the ODI World Cup, mate. What a trip it must have been for you on a professional sense and on a cricketing sense. Matty, uh, uh, thanks very much for your call too, by the way, uh, and uh, hello to all your listeners. Uh, it was a, uh, it's a bit hard when you're 66 years of age to say it was the time of your lifetime, but uh, to be fair, it was right up there. Uh, I, I did really, um, I jumped at the opportunity. I hadn't been there for 20 years, and I just was amazed at how India itself as a country had gone forward in that time, and in terms of travel, 
um, hotels, you know, cricket grounds, facilities, etc. I just, I was quite amazed. And then, of course, you get to the World Cup proper itself, and uh, there was some um, some amazing cricket played. Uh, and you know, it's very easy to say in hindsight, but I, I always kind of figured that once you got your campaign back on track, Australia, I'm talking about here, I thought you're probably the only team that could beat India, and that was quite a long way out. So. Uh, yeah, uh, it was a, a hell of a time, to be honest. And, and you know, you're mixing with, with former players, fellow commentators, etc., getting different perspectives. It was it flew by, actually, 50-odd days in India. It didn't used to fly by. It did this time. Yeah, exactly. I read your article that's on the SEN website, and I urge our listeners to do so because you piece that together there, and you talk about the 53 days of being there, and and the last person that you saw before you leave the country is a, a customs officer in immigration, and you stand there and talk cricket. I mean, that's not what you normally do at customs, mate. You normally get shoved all the way through, or completely, you know, just hurry up and get out of here. But that's the kind of the kind of country that you're in. But the experience that that you had and what you saw in particular on an Australian sense. And, and you've made it clear there that you think that Australia were the only ones who could have knocked over India, and that's the way that it played out. Did you see a team from Australia that was building momentum and working out how to win a tournament versus a team that goes out trying to win a match? Because it, it seemed to me as though they had the long game in mind the whole way throughout that one-day International World Cup. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I think you make a point, but I don't think you expected or anyone expected them to be 0-2 um, after the first two games. And I thought, uh, well, I looked at them from the outside and having commentated Australia uh, for quite a period of time now, I just, you, you pick up on body language and, and the first two games, they looked a bit flat. They looked a bit tired. They had a hell of a campaign going into it. And I was a bit worried from their point of view at that, at that particular uh, juncture of the competition, I thought this this is a side that, although it's got a wealth of experience, it's got a number of players in there who know how to win World Cups, I wonder if they're up for it. I, I just wonder if they're up for it. And one of the great uh, telling points is when you see a side uh, in the field uh, and you, you see them flat in the field, you see the body language and you see them dropping catches. And that, that's not the Australian way, but that was what it was in the first two games. Uh, I caught up with them for the first time in person when they were on show. Um, admittedly, uh, it was against uh, Sri Lanka and it was uh, at Lucknow and Sri Lanka weren't playing that well. And I kind of sensed that that was quite a big day for them because they normally would bully uh, Sri Lanka in, the mo- in, in most days uh, in a World Cup, and they did. They got their act together. Uh, they fielded like troopers, and unbelievably, it was David Warner that led it. Um, they took some amazing catches, and you could just see from that, I don't know if that was a turning point, but it certainly uh, t- gave everyone in the tournament just an indication that we better not forget them. Yeah, you could definitely tell the, the change in body language and also the way that they wanted to push teams around from, from that match as well. And I was watching that match at the same time, mate, and I was like, well, hang on a second, everything's changing here. They're, they're being really aggressive on that. And then we get to the final. So did you, did you also wonder if India, and this has been, you know, dissected at length, Smithy, did you wonder if India had played their grand final before they got to the grand final? Look, in a competition that long, you know, there's got to be a day when you're not at your very best. And, you know, they'd played some hell of a good cricket under pressure, under duress. It's such a, such a hard thing to do to be an Indian cricketer. It, get, it comes with all the great 
bells and whistles and a lot of money, etc. But to live the life and to have and, and on a daily basis have the expectation that you've got to play well and do brilliantly, um, you know, I, I think at some point it just had to catch them. But unfortunately for them, it just uh, became too much right at the very end. Yeah, they played some great cricket. They were, you know, they, uh, there was a reason they were the, fi- the favourites going into the final because they deserved to be. Uh, they'd beaten up on everyone quite considerably. They'd done us twice. Um, they beat you um, in the first game of the competition to get themselves up and running, and, and they really hadn't looked back. And the, the only problem that they had, they played so well at a number of uh, key positions like six and seven and eight hadn't, to do, hadn't had to do any batting. Uh, and so they'd left themselves short in that area. And as soon as it became evident that someone could put some pressure on them, and the best way to do that was to get early wickets, the, then you, you have to ask those guys to do things they hadn't done in the tournament, and they couldn't do it. So Australia had a game plan, um, I think, which was very clever. I mean, most Australian sides, Matty, as you know, uh, will bat first if they win a toss on a sunny day anywhere, let alone India. They'll bat first. Uh, they bowl first, which was a bit of a shock to a lot of people in the commentary box. Um, probably as a shock to India as well. Uh, they asked India to get out there and, um, you know, they took those early wickets. And at that point, once they got a snuff, a side that wins five World Cups and now six are not going to let that go. And they, they were brilliant. They, their, their match plan was brilliant. Their execution of their match plan was brilliant. A lot of talk about Travis Head, but there was a hell of a lot of damage done before he got there. You've seen some things in your cricketing time, mate, in your sporting sporting time, but what about Glenn Maxwell? He's done it again overnight as well with another rapid-fire yeah. 100, and he's, and he's done it the way that Glenn Maxwell does it. But, I mean, how on earth do you – and you did it so well, but how on earth do you put it all into perspective, into words of what Glenn Maxwell is capable of and has now and has been and continues to deliver? We were looking um – Matt, that was seven for 91 when this all started to unfold and Maxwell had been at the crease and lost a couple of partners already. And this is Afghanistan, for goodness sake, in a World Cup. And Afghanistan had played some good cricket. And here we were probably looking at the biggest, the biggest upset in the tournament because the way that Australia had started to play and the way Afghanistan were beating up on them, I mean, seven for 91, that was, they were looking at a hiding, not just a beating, a hiding. Uh, so when Maxwell took over and I, he just threw caution to the wind, I think he got put down um, at backward square leg, a very simple catch. Uh, I think if that had been taken, Australia were toast and Afghanistan would have won. And I think he just thought, uh, he, he looked, there's a look on his face as if to say, hell, really? This may well be my day. And then he started and then, of course, he ran out of gas. Um, you know, a number of times uh, umpires must have considered saying, this can't continue. Uh, we've got to get this game over at some point. And, uh, you know, they, they looked at him and on the, on the ground and we were just uh, looking upstairs thinking, well, you know, he's going to hit one up on the air and he's going to get caught shortly. And I, I was working with uh, five Australian commentators and they'd seen Glenn Maxwell do lots of amazing things, but not this. Not this when you've got no legs, when you've got no hitting platform, you've got no power to hit from, when you just use absolute um, audacity, really, uh, thrown in with an amazing hand-eye coordination to do what he did um, and, you know, we got to the point in the con box when I think Australia still needed 100 to win and we could just see Afghanistan, out the window Afghanistan, uh, had run out of ideas. Maxwell had hit them and Cummins had defended them to a point where they just had no idea how they were going to get Maxwell out and stop him winning the game. So at 100, you know, with 100 to win, we thought Australia were favourites. They shouldn't have been, but they were, and he just continued to do it. And 
the fact that he won it with an amazing shot uh, was of no great surprise. I mean, uh, uh, but to call it, to be there, watch it out the window, watch it unfold, uh, was, was, you know, one of my great memories of cricket, I've got to say. Uh, it's awesome, mate. The, the hairs on the back of the neck are standing up just hearing you recap that. It's just one of those incredible moments. All that's really in the, the full-blown summer of cricket is yet to begin. Your mob are um, currently against Bangladesh and Australia trying to work out what happens life after Davey Warner. But we'll park that and have a discussion on that a little bit later on. Wanted to say congratulations. Wanted to catch up with you and, and get your thoughts. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you're back home, mate. And we appreciate your time again this morning. Appreciate it, Matty, and um, I'll be a little bit closer than you think coming up, so I'm going to spend a bit of time uh, with the SEN commentary team throughout the summer and a bit of time on Fox as well, so uh, it won't have to be a, a high-priced overseas price phone call anymore. We can almost <laughs> do it domestically. <laughs> well, what is a domestic call worth these days? Bucket if I know. Good on you, oh. mate. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Cheers, Matty. All the best, mate. Ian Smith joining us there, sen.com.au. If you go to that website, um, pretty easy to find. But, yeah, it's put into words in, in black and white there. The the recap of the Indian experience, 53 days over there. They closed their lanes, experienced firsthand the importance of cricket to India. Um, one, heck of a, one heck of a sportsman. One heck of a commentator and one heck of a bloke too. So happy that he's part of the SEN family and great to hear that he's going to be in our backyard. 0457 736 736. Couple of texts, Bulldog Trent. Kane um, on the Joseph Suali system. No matter what, his contract wouldn't expire until November 1st. So surely can't start with rugby until that happens. And he, Kane says, I can't see the Roosters playing ball to let him play or train for rugby as well. Yeah, well, Phil Wars said, you know, we're going to hopefully have him there on that spring tour. So either or, it's pretty cutting it fine, isn't it? It's going to have this busy back end of 2024. We're back after this break. Welcome back. There's a little bit of weirdness going on in Formula One and the FIA. Um, You'll remember Australia's Michael Massey, who was the race director in that fateful Abu Dhabi event and all the stuff that went on there. And Lewis Hamilton missed out on his eighth championship. Max Verstappen claimed that there was all sorts of dramas, and Michael Massey um, got bashed from pillar to post, quite literally. He's now been back in Australia for a while. I've known Michael for a long, long time, and I um, was there, in fact, at the race when he took over um, in Formula One, and then he turned it into his main job. But if you remember all the stuff that went on there, it was quite crazy. And now the FIA president, Mohammed bin Sulaim, has made these quotes this morning, which I saw early this morning. He said, I always apologise, but I can't apologise for something that was done before my time. He says, OK, I will do the apology, but I will bring Michael Massey back in again. Do you think that's right? The poor guy is a person who's been attacked and abused. Michael Massey went through hell, hell. And if there is an opportunity that the FIA needs and Michael Massey is the right person, I will bring him. And then he goes on with some other weird quotes. But... That's the first I've seen of the FIA and perhaps it's a reflection of the kind of season that they had of just total dominance. The last thing they want in Formula One is complete dominance and that's exactly what Red Bull and Max Verstappen have done. Whether or not, you know, how does that play out with Michael Massey and all that kind of stuff, 
it's really, really interesting that his name's popped up again and that the president is saying he's been through hell, which he has, and if there is an opportunity and Michael Massey's the right pers- person, I'll bring him in. The only thing I can surmise out of all of that is that's exactly what they're thinking. And this is a good way to put it out there before they try and make any call around that. The other part is whether or not Michael Massey would want to go back into that Viper pit. Now, the events of 2021 in Abu Dhabi, and we picked it apart right here. I sat and watched that race, and I think that there were wrong calls made along the way from Michael. But he certainly didn't deserve to get... um, hung, drawn and quartered the way that he did. So I'm not too sure whether or not if the FIA pick up the phone and say, would you come back? I'd hope he put a massive dollar figure on it and also say that I'm going to do it this way. And that person, that person and that person cannot come within 50 metres of me ever again (laughs) because quite seriously, he copped it. Right or wrong, in his professional decision that he made, and he made a decision, which is what he's paid to do, the personal attacks on Michael Massey were extraordinary. But a really interesting one to come out of Formula One. Let's put that in the watch this space category. Let's go to the news. And his big red sale is on right now with limited time offers on flights, cruises, holidays and tours. You can book now to save big. one three hundred oh one eleven seventy is our open line. Give me a call if you want to continue our discussion on any of the matters in front of us this morning. And there are quite a few. But you'll have to hold the phone just a sec because I've got Sydney Roosters star Jess Sergis on the line. He's given us some time this morning. G'day, Jess. Congratulations on the new deal. You'll be a rooster until... Well, at least until the end of 2027. That's a that's a good good signing. Yeah, absolutely. I um, might see the rest of my career out there, which I'm pretty happy. I'll be 30 by the time that rolls around, so I'll be an old chook by then. <laughs> Quite literally, an old chook. Did you think about Did you think about um, this deal? In terms of the length of it, how did that play out, the four-year part of it? Was it the club offering you that? Was it something that you wanted to look for, um, you know, to try and lock down the next few years of your footballing life? Yeah, it was a bit of both, to be honest. I think, you know, previously we only had one-year contracts and, you know, it would be quite stressful by the time that you ran up that you wouldn't know what you were doing or, you know, if there was even an injury that could jeopardise your future um, the following year. So, yeah, I kind of just sat down with my manager and I knew that I wanted to stay at the Roosters. I love the club there and it's definitely um, a second home to me. But, you know, I know I wanted a long-term deal. I, I didn't expect the four. They kind of came back to me and wanting the four, which, you know, I felt um, quite happy about. I felt quite loved and wanted. So, you know, it kind of worked out best for both of us. And um, I'm just happy that we got the job done and um, I can just, you know, focus on footy now and not have to worry about anything else that comes with it. Which is cool. I mean, it's obviously cool and, and it's and it's a credit to you and your relationship with the club and, and, and you've earned your stripes. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But it's interesting to think, Jess, isn't it? It wasn't that long ago when we were thinking about the CBA and the RLPA and everything that was going on and everything was in limbo. What was it like when, when the world... Yeah was in limbo and and now flip side that just what a few months later and you you've locked yourself in until 2027 yeah it was a bit of a a bit of a bizarre time like obviously we had our um we had our girls 
talking to RLPA daily and, you know, they were giving us all the information that we needed. But, yeah, it was just a really bizarre time for us in the NRL and I just feel like, you know, I think if us players didn't put our foot down and, you know, um, I guess really stand for what we wanted and what we deserved, I don't think any of this would be happening. So, you know, I think it all it all worked out in the, in the end, but, you know, we're just so... We're just very lucky that we have RLPA on our side and, you know, can be the voice for us players. And, um, yeah, as I said, if it wasn't for all of us, you know, standing our ground a little bit and knowing our worth, I don't think we'd be able to get the deals that we got done this year. And not only for myself, but, you know, for other girls in different clubs as well, it's all worked out for everybody. So, you know, we're very, um, very appreciative of that. Again, it's a, it's a reflection on what you girls have been doing. Taryn Aitken, they also announced uh, her re-signing as well. So the Roosters locking in the squad. Um, what about you? I, th- I understand, did you have surgery on a pinky toe? Yes, I did, about four days ago now. <laughs> did so you? I'm, a, I'm a bit of so cripple. What's... I've got a plaster to my knee and on crutches. It's horrible. Hang on, you've got a plaster to your knee for a pinky. Yes, it's very dramatic. Oh, Everyone thinks yeah. I've, I've broken my ankle, but it's it's just for a pinky toe. So they had to, it was a bit more dramatic than that. They had to take right. some heel, um, some bone out of my heel and connect it to my toe, um, oh. you know, which made the, the plaster having to go up to my knee so I couldn't, so I couldn't walk and put pressure on it. So yeah, they've done me dirty, but you know, yeah. it's only a couple of weeks with the crutches, so I'll be all right. Okay, so a couple of weeks with the crutches and then what's the full recovery time like that? Because, you know, we, we laugh about, oh, it's only a pinky toe, but then when you go through the detail of what it is, I mean, it's quite dramatic surgery. So when will you be back out and ready to train again at least or, or start to run and throw footies around? Yeah, well, I got to, I ended up getting to go to the gym yesterday, which was great for my head. I've been stuck in a bed for a few days and I can't, I can't keep still for too long. So, you know, I can go to the gym now and do, I guess, all my upper body stuff. I hopefully I'll be able to swim, um, in a couple of weeks just to get some fitness, but I'm still going to be in a moon boot for about four to six weeks just to still stabilize, um, the joint down there. So I came back a bit too early, um, at the start of the year with when I first did the injury and I've obviously made it worse. So my surgeon, is taking full precaution this time and, you know, really making sure I don't do any more damage to it. So I'm going to say another four to six weeks in the boot and then, you know, hopefully running in about eight weeks' time. So, yeah, it's frustrating, but I guess we have the time off now to do all the little things right to get our bodies right for the next year and um, that's what I've got to do. So just got to be smart with it, I guess. Yeah, football, it's the game that keeps on giving, isn't it? In a, in a, in a ouch, I feel it every morning sort of sense and you're going through that. Uh, just a couple of broader topics. Next season, we know we'll be in state of origin and you've represented at state of origin level, what, seven times for, for the Blues. Next season will be a three game series, an absolute no brainer for that. So that must make you feel good about where the women's game in state of origin is at and a headline act. And also, the expansion. So we had the new teams come in in the season just gone. Where do you think that window yep. sits at the moment from a player's perspective? I think, you know, last year we were a bit nervous um, having all those new teams come in. We didn't really know what the competition was going to be like. We didn't know if it was going to be blowout scores or, you know, I think for us as as players, we really want our quality of our game to be great and every game to be, you know, up there with the highest standard of footy. So 
we were a little bit nervous at the start and I didn't know how it was going to play out. We saw, you know, the teams that have been around for the last four or five years that, you know, they would really excel and be great because they've been in here the last however long. But I think it just shows how far our game has grown. And, you know, I think it was a little bit rocky at the start. There was a lot of um, us, for example, we got beat by the Raiders and, you know, that was a shock to the system. And I think that was a really wake-up call for everyone in our game that, you know, these teams have come to play and they're not just here just to fill numbers. So, you know, I think it was one of my favourite games, favourite year actually, um, that I've played in the NRLW. And I think it's just because we had the longest season. We had, you know, more time to get in a groove um, with our with our team and, you know, really play the best standard of 40 that we could. And, you know, I love that every game that we played, we would get better and a lot more, a bit more confident. And I think it showed by the back end that, you know, you had the individual brilliance like Taryn putting in chips and chases for herself. But four games prior, I don't think she'd be doing that because she just want to play it safe. So, you know, I think it's just we're going in such a right, great direction. And I know that, you know, in a, maybe next year or the year after when we do, you know, add a couple more teams again, that it's just going to get better and better. And, you know, the, the girls are going to get confident and, you know, do little things like that, which is going to make our game even better. So, you know, we're happy and we're really looking forward to... a, a bigger and more expansion as well so well said the evolution's been wonderful and it's also been quick too which is which is great but you've got to be patient so there's that incredible balance that seems to be working well so we're going to let you relax throughout the off season keep your keep your feet up so to speak um get yourself right and then we'll (laughs) touch base again when you get into the 2024 season so good luck with the recovery thanks for your time this morning jess no worries thank you so much Jess Sergis joining us there. So, yeah, wow, that's some pretty pr- pretty heavy um, surgery just four days ago. 28 NRLW games, 10 for the Dragons, 18 for the Roosters. Now a deal that goes out to 2027, how quickly it can turn around once those, um, those speed humps are out of the way. And in particular, throughout the course of 2023, the speed hump was that collective bargaining agreement. Meanwhile, the Canberra, Canberra Raiders in the NRL have re-signed Jamal Fogarty. So they have extended his deal for a further two seasons out until 2026. The final year of the new deal will be an option. So that last year of the... Uh, New deal will be an option, but they've locked in Jamal Fogarty again down in the nation's capital. 0457 736 736 is our text line. Hit us up. 1300 01 1170 is the open line. It's 18 minutes to 11 o'clock. How cool was Jess Sergis? We've had some terrific guests this morning. Jess, off the back of our chat with Ian Smith as well. Alistair Dobson from the WBBL and BBL along the way so always great to get the input of those that are running the game inside the game commentating on the game have played the game i mean we're very very lucky here and we hope you're enjoying it on 1300-01-1170 that open line number in terms of the biggest show in world sport on the australian stage who's who's going to tap you on the shoulder and say hey you you and Aussie, you know and then mention a name because if you're in India or Pakistan, if you're in one of the cricketing nations, then surely it's got to be Paddy uh, Paddy Cummins, Warner and Glenn Maxwell at the moment. Um, No doubt about it, especially in India, you're looking at Maxie and David Warner. Ben Simmons says Jingles would have a decent online following 
I would think. He's got seven and a half million Instagram followers, which is pretty damn handy. And believe me, they they certainly do count when advertisers and marketers are looking at it. Um, that they, they count. It's not the whole, the whole, the sum of the whole thing. You know, it's it's just part of the story that they piece together. But they like that kind of stuff. The reach of these influences, so to speak. The Reptile says, do you think that the Bulldogs might sign Tyrone Peachy? He's the only utility player left they haven't signed. My wife's family are all Bulldogs fans, and I'm telling you honestly, they're absolutely disgusted with the signings that they've done. Uh, well, Peachy's locked in for another year. So, who knows? Dan says, could you see a world in 2024 where Suali'i goes early and turns up at Paris in August? So, gets the Australian Sevens position and becomes an Olympian. That, Dan, would I could, I could see a world, but that world would be dependent on the Roosters saying, go with our blessing halfway through. And it appears as though that world isn't in existence at the moment. Good morning to my SEN family. This is the Daggy Dragon. I've been away for a while and I haven't kept up on the rugby league. What are my dragons doing? And as far as Vegas is concerned, I've just come back from there. All the Americans know is that there's going to be a big fight. And there's an Australian in it. The NRL needs to do something. Ooh, okay. Well, I'm not sure what the... I mean, we know that the marketing campaign and the advertising campaign is up and running. No helmets, no pads, no fear. In terms of what they're doing in Vegas itself, if all that you're hearing is that there's a fight and Tim Zoo's going to be there, then I don't know what at what stage that marketing plan kicks in. So, yeah, watch this one. And it also just gets me thinking, Daggy Dragon, around how much you want to target Vegas itself. I mean, there is their target... I, I don't know how how many people actually live in Vegas. You know, most people go to Vegas. Is their target the people who are going to be in Vegas that weekend? Is the target the people who are going to Vegas? Or is the target the greater American audience. I'd say it's the last because that's where they get their bigger numbers. And obviously they want to see if people are in town, you come and see it and make it a big show. But you're saying that basically boxing's the headline act for those that are on the ground there. Thank you for that. In terms of the Dragons, signed Tom Eisenhuth on a one-year deal, but in the market for pretty much everyone. <laughs> Adam Fanua Blake, Joey Manu, Tom Dearden. So Shane Flanagan's made no secret of the fact that you pop up on the radar, we're going to look at you. And I like it. If if that's my team, that's what I want my head coach to be saying. Or the CEO. Aaron says, My concern with the words of wisdom from Andrew McDonald, Ree Cameron Green and his return was the lack of emphasis on form of current players in the team, i.e. waiting for when Marsh finishes. This, to me, gives certainty over a position, not players competing for positions. Your thoughts. I hear what you're saying on that. And there is definitely some certainty but what they operate Aaron my thoughts on this is uh, this are that w- what they operate is there's a period of certainty around the form that you're in and what you've been delivering otherwise how do you know when to keep a player or move a player so at the moment there's a period of certainty around Mitchell Marsh there's no doubt about it and there's also a period of certainty long term for Cameron Green 
So I see what you're saying. You know, you in a, in, in a perfect world, you throw them both out there and both in the nets and you'd say, right, oh, show me. Show me who gets the spot. So the default position would be what's our best 11? And then the position after that is who makes up the best combination within that 11? And then a longer term as well. So there's no point having a longer-term view on, a, say, a Mitchell Marsh versus a Cameron Green, given the age discrepancy. So the long, long play is always going to be on Cam Green in this one. But you raise a really good point, Aaron, a really good point around that players competing for positions. It's an interesting one. How much can you compete in the nets, for instance? How much can Cameron Green show that he's ready to go if he's not getting a start? So that's the balance that selectors have and that's the balance that captains have and that's the balance that coaches have. And it's it's not easy. But there's also long-term, short-term plays in that as well. Not to mention the world's busiest cricket schedule. They have to take that into account. As much as it does your brain in, the loads and all that kind of stuff does have to be taken into account, especially at that level. Six and a half minutes to 11 o'clock. Welcome back. Our final hour of the program. Got some uh, more NRL transfer news to deliver. Some news coming through from the NBA as well. And the Australian Open golf starts tomorrow at the Australian and the Lakes. I'll run you through some of the early pairings on that one, even though they will go out in threes. Um, But there's some very, very good groups to follow early on at both the Australian and the Lakes, in fact. But the North Queensland Cowboys have now re-signed Zach Laybutt. So 21-year-old who came out of nowhere throughout the season, outside of the top 30, in fact, to make his NRL debut. So they have agreed to a one-year contract extension. He's a PNG international, which runs through to the end of 2025. Four games in his maiden NRL season, two tries in that round 26 win over the Dolphins, and he's the brother of Kyle. Zach grew up in Bundaberg before relocating to North Queensland, where he joined the Cowboys' young guns in 2021. So it's been a rapid rise for Zach, and now he has inked a deal that will keep him at the Cowboys until the end of 2025. May his test debut for PNG at the end of the season uh, in those Pacific Championships, and he played in all three games. So Peter Hicku is um, probably the most likely spot there that Zach Laybutt ends up taking as he moves off to the Super League. And that probably poses a question too. I think I've got some text here around this, but we can get to those later. But it probably poses a question too for us to think about down the track. If you are a PNG international um, and you're thinking that the next club to come into the NRL is going to be Papua New Guinea, won't be until 2027, for instance, what do you do in your contracts at the moment? If you're a player like Zach, you're 21 years of age, that takes you through until 2025. And perhaps you want to be part of the new franchise. So do you start now looking at deals that only go for a year or so and then get you in the picture once, if and when, there is a uh, PNG side up and running? I'll get Tommy to come in a little bit later and join that discussion as we look at some of the PNG internationals playing in the NRL and what that could mean for their future contracts. One to keep an eye on on that one as well. Mark Cuban is selling a majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks to 
a casino tycoon family, <laughs> Miriam Adelson, somewhere between three, around three and a half billion US. He will still get to keep shares in the team and has full control of basketball operations. Wow. So this family is the largest shareholder in the Las Vegas Sands casino chain, so they're going okay. They recently sold $2 billion worth of shares in preparation of buying the Dallas Mavericks. Mark, the current owner, Cuban, paid $285 million for the team back in 2000. So he's, in the space of 23 years, got that to $3.5 billion, but still keeps shares and has full control of basketball operations. Doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. Sounds like there's uh, one winner in that one. I mean, I don't know if the old Adelson family can lose being the biggest shareholders in a casino chain in Vegas. I don't think they're short of cash, but they're prepared to splash out here. And it just goes to show again the value of professional sporting teams right around the globe, especially in the NBA. I mean, that's a bit of a no-brainer, but... Sporting franchises in particular, they can be risky. They are risky. But their value has never been greater. Matty says, Matt on the text line, if you have a multi on Minwoo and Minji Lee to both win the Aussie Open this week, you're getting about 12 to 1. Imagine the odds you could have got when they were infants. It's an amazing Aussie story. Yeah. It's a it's an incredible Aussie story. I mean, the fact that they could both be at the Olympic, Olympic Games representing Australia in golf is another part of it as well. So Min Woo Lee, fresh off the Australian PGA, will tee off early tomorrow morning at the Lakes. It'll be a 7 o'clock start for him. He'll have Cameron Smith alongside him and Rikuya Hoshino. And Min Ji Lee will tee off in the next group at 7.16. And Steph Kiriakou will also be part of that. As well, they'll be followed then by Mark Leishman and Cameron Davis, the 2017 winner. And over at the Australian, the defending Australian Open champion Adrian Moronk is in a group with Adam Scott, Matt Jones as well. One, two, three, four Australian Open titles in that threesome right there. Matt Jones with two wins, Adam Scott one in 2009, and of course Moronk in 2022. And then Aaron Baddeley with Lucas Herbert and his group just after midday. So when that gets underway tomorrow, we'll be across that. And Larry Canning will join us with that one as well. one three hundred oh one eleven seventy 1170 is that open line number. Keep your thoughts coming. We'll take your texts and calls. But Joel King's going to join me in just a second. Another big night on Saturday night for Sydney FC. Perth Glory in town at Allianz Stadium. Of course, Sydney coming off that loss to the Western Sydney Wanderers. On the line, I've got Joel King from Sydney FC who joins us this morning. G'day, Joel. Hey, Matt. How are you? Thanks, mate. Good, thanks. Great to have your company on the program, mate. Um, how are things at Sydney FC? It's It's been a weird old start to the season. So much change with Ufi Tele that we've spoken about as well, but the reflection after that loss to the Wanderers. Yeah, it's been pretty tough. Um, obviously, uh, having the defeat against Wanderers isn't isn't good, but um, I think Ufi's done well to um, bring us in straight away and then um, keep our heads. Um, I've had him a few times now as a um, in the youth team and national team setups, but um, yeah, one thing he's really good at is um, 
keeping the boys together and keeping um, everyone's heads up. So, yeah, I think the best thing we can um, look forward to now is the Perth game on Saturday. So, yeah, we're just looking forward to that now and forgetting what happened last weekend, I guess. I guess you constantly get asked, and I've asked this question of your teammates as well, you know, with the change of philosophies, but but your current coach has, has been there for a while anyway, so it's it's not as though you tipped the entire bucket upside down. Is it more a matter of waiting for things to click again? Um, yeah. I guess he hasn't changed too much in the uh, formation and whatnot, but he's just changed a few... Um, um, rotations and positional things that um, we could have adjusted. So um, it hasn't been too much of a change, but yeah, I think just the intensity as well has um, picked up a lot. So I think um, the way we want to play is um, yeah, very intense. And I think we're still just adjusting to that. Um, he's, yeah, just, he's kept on reassuring us that if we keep on um, trying to play his style, that it's going to come. We're not going to um, learn the way he wants to play overnight. So, um, I think we've just got to be resilient and um, keep on trying the things that he's, he wants us to do. Tell us about intensity, Joel, because intensity always <laughs> starts at training, doesn't it? So I'm assuming you guys have a lot of fun and I'm assuming you've got a really good squad, but I'm also assuming that when it's when it's switched on, it can be quite intense. So what's that level like at training? Yeah, you're not wrong. It's um, it's stepped up a gear. Um we used to have two-day lead-ins, so train game day minus one, game day minus two. Now we've got four-day lead-ins, so um, <laughs> it, it has jumped up a gear, and um, we're training a lot harder, but um, I think it's obviously for the better, and um, the boys are sore at the moment, but uh, slow and steady, we will um, get adjusted to the to the load, and then um, I think we'll be um, yeah one of the fittest teams in the league, so um, I think, yeah, that's the way he wants us to play, so I can't wait for us to... Um, really be in tune and um, and um, yeah, clicking together. So yeah, I think it's it's going to be a good season, even though we've had a few rough um, games at the start. Because there's that physical intensity, Joel, isn't there? And then there's that mental one. So I, I guess you're exhausted by the time you get all through that. What have you guys been doing to to relax and and take the focus off off football? Um, I think everyone's different. Obviously, we have. Um, a, a day off and a recovery day at the start of the week but um, yeah I think everyone is different when they leave the training field some p- people play golf some people go home and spend time with their kids and whatnot um, but yeah I think yeah that's the thing you gotta you find how to turn off and um, yeah relax and then when you come into training you um, work your your butt off <laughs> Yours has been an extraordinary story. When you when you think about the last couple of years in particular, do you still scratch your head? I mean, the the call that you got when you're over there at OB in the, in the Danish league from Graham Arnold, then the call that you make to your parents at 4am in the morning back here to say, I'm I'm now part of the Socceroos squad. The photo that I've seen that you had with Lionel Messi um, after that loss to Argentina. Ha- have you stopped for a minute, Joel, and gone, hang on a second, this has been wicked? Um, yeah, a few times. Obviously, it's a, I've had a few crazy experiences in the last year or so. So, um, yeah, it's... It's not not easy to forget them sort of opportunities that I've had. So, yeah, I'm just grateful that I've um, been given the opportunity to experience those things. And, um, yeah, I just try to use those experiences to um, 
yeah, work on my game and um, improve, I guess. Just a quick one. Um, this news came through this morning, so it's all still kind of raw and we're trying to pick our way through it. But there's talk that the International Football Association board, well, the board has recommended that they start trialling sin bins. So essentially not a yellow card. You would get a yellow card and it's not a red card, but it's kind of like an orange card where you get a yellow card plus you'd spend 10 minutes on the sidelines. Has that ever happened through... I mean, they've done grassroots testing. Has that scenario ever popped up in anywhere that you've played? And, and what's your initial reaction to it? Nah, I've not, not heard of that before. I think I've seen it online that they were trialling it. But, yeah, never in my career that I've um, played a game that, that's happened. Um, I think I can see the sense in that. Um, but, yeah, I think we're just going to have to... If it happens, then we'll see how it goes. I think it's a bit like VAR. Obviously, some people love it, some people hate it. But, um, yeah, I think when I hear it, it just sounds like uh, rugby league. And, yeah, so, um, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see and, um, yeah, see how it goes. I reckon your take on that spot on, mate, it's it's like VAR. It's, some will like it, some will hate it. Either way, it'll get people talking if it does come in. So we'll watch this space. Um, good to catch up with you this morning, mate. Appreciate your time and best of luck on Saturday night against the Glory. No worries. Thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Lakemba Dragon on our text line says regarding your chat with Jess Sergis a little bit earlier, and you can catch up with that on the podcast. It's been very noticeable over the past few years, a lot more young girls doing league training and clinics, even dads taking their daughters down to the Oval. The women's game, definitely the greatest area for growth of the game. I'd 100% agree, Lakemba Dragon. Now, throughout the course of this season, um, on the regular roundup with Matty Johns on a Monday morning right here on this program. That, they've been Matty's words especially, that when we look at expansion, perhaps we look at the women's side of the game. So if we're thinking about, okay, do we take a second team into New Zealand, for instance, which to me is probably the, the way to go. I think they're clearly going to go another way initially, but wouldn't that be perfect to expand the women's game over there along the way and use that growth area of the game because I think you are spot on. It's absolutely noticeable. And with players like Jess leading the way and every other player that's been um, forging the path, well, the path's right here now. And it's reflected in the fact that she can sign a contract now until the end of 2027, have some security there, really good security there, as a professional football player. So the money will continue to grow. We know that. And what players like Jess and Co are earning right now, the players of the future will be earning more. But the growth part of the game is you are spot on, Lakemba Dragon, right there in front of us in the NRLW. And they're working hard at it across the board. Thank you for that one. Is the NRL in Vegas clashing with the USA Sevens, which is an established fixture and oversight, or is it intended? I think that that was just the date that they ended up finding. I don't know if it was intended or an oversight. It was just the date that they ended up with. Um, I don't know how you sort of, you know, you have to backtrack and try and work out how you're going to squeeze everything in. In Sheffield Shield, really interesting what's happening at the SCG. So remember, started yesterday, New South Wales v Tasmania. New South Wales were sent into bat and were, I think they were about seven for when they started the day. 
have now been bowled out for 224. Ollie Davies remained not out 81 off 115 balls. Moses Enriquez, the skipper, was dismissed for 54. So they were the only two that got into any meaningful figures, really. Jason Sanger with 19, the other top scorer, and Sam Constance on debut yesterday with 10. But, the so the performance of Ollie Davies is a standout. In a total of 224, he knocked 81 of those and remained not out at the crease. The performance of Lawrence Neal Smith, the youngster, for the Tasmanian bowlers was extraordinary. He's finished with figures of 7 for 58. So 20.5 overs, 7 maidens, 7 wickets for 58 runs. He dismissed the openers. Then he dismissed Jason Sanger. He dismissed the skipper. Um, he dismissed the keeper. He dismissed Jackson Bird. And he bowled Chris Tremaine to wrap it up. Seven wickets, not a bad effort. In reply, Tasmania yet to lose a wicket, five overs down, and they're 19 runs on the board, so they trail by 205 runs. Pat Cummins, of course, and Mitchell Stark were doing the the show and tell with the World Cup trophy, and good on them. They were out there at the SCG and lots of great photos. And Pat Cummins also spoke on the captaincy, which has been a big talking point, what he's achieved this year as captain, as a fast bowler, and how also that's helped his own performances during his career. So how the captaincy has not only worked for Australia, but how it's worked for Pat Cummins. I'll definitely become, you know, get better with captaincy every game. Absolutely. You, you learn so much in your wins and probably even more so in your losses throughout the, throughout the way. Um, so no, no doubt I'm getting better and better. I think, you know, as a bowler, for sure, I, I love being at the top of the mark, speaking to these guys, working through bowling plans and... That gives me real, certainly when I go and bowl as well, it definitely helps me. We always try different things and it doesn't always come off. That was the day where everything came off. Um, I think it could have been easy for, you know, not only me, but the, the coaching staff, the players, to take the easy options and you get presented with lots of those throughout the, the game or the tournament, but we kept doubling down. We wanted to be aggressive, we wanted to be brave, um, take some risks and fortunately they paid off and we thought we needed to take those risks to have any chance, so... Really proud with, yeah, I guess not only the result and them coming off, but actually taking those risks in the first place. It's the ad, uh, that ability to be resilient as well when you're a skipper, to know when things aren't working that you've either got to change your plan or keep going until they do work. And planning is another very important aspect of captaincy. I've got the utmost respect for, for captains in sport because I was never an on-field captain, but especially in cricket, there's so much going on. Plus, you've got your role to play. There's there's nowhere to hide in a cricketing 11. It's the same as all sports. But you've got your role to play. Rugby league's a great example. But you've also got to figure out what the heck's going on and how we start to use this. And then the numbers in the back of your head, plus the pressure and everything that goes with it, the resilience of that is incredible. And the cool thing about that too, especially in a cricket sense, is not only Pat Cummins talking about the aggression that Ian Smith and I were talking about this morning, but the fact that you don't stop learning, especially, again, as a captain. Now, when you're a world-class cricketer, a world-class batter or a world-class fielder, you continually hone your skills. There's no doubt about it. You try and get better and better and better. 
But your skills are your skills, and you're fine-tuning a lot of things. Captaincy, there's so much to learn because there's so many moving parts. And so Pat Cummins is in that growth period that he hopes continues to go on. Rarely, I think, has there been a captain, especially of a test cricketing side and an Australian test cricket side who's gone out there and go, oh, I'm captain now, so leave it to me. I know everything. They learn on the way, and every game is a learning experience. So that was interesting to hear from Pat Cummins on that one. Meanwhile, while they were – so they're at, the, <laughs> they're at the SCG, and we spoke to Lockie McCurdy from Code Sports yesterday. They're at the SCG and doing the show and tell – but remember that the Sheffield Shields there. So there's a couple of fans out and about. Lockie actually recorded this one on his phone whilst Pat Cummins was posing for some photos with the World Cup trophy. Let's see if you can hear this. Take it in where it belongs, boys. Give it a good spot in there. Next to the ashes, Paddy. Put it next to the ashes, bro. <laughs> you know what? With all due respect... That's you know that's that's the kind of stuff that you get in a Sheffield Shield. Like you've got, he's got plenty of room around him, I reckon, old mate. And he's gone. Things are a bit slow today. And then Pat Cummins turns up with Mitchell Stark with the World Cup trophy, and I'm just gonna make the most of it. I mean, it ain't no yabber, but it's certainly having a bit of fun. So a little bit of banter there. Uh, and then I think Tommy, you were saying to me that the security guards sort of went just went and sort of shut it. They didn't kick him out, did they? No, they didn't kick old mate out. They just I think they just shut it down. I hope not. He was just having a good time. Uh, well done to all concerned for getting that trophy on show yesterday as well, a road trip. There's not going to be a ticker tape as far as I can tell. I think they've gone by the wayside. But I'm hoping that wherever the Australian cricketers go when they get back and they catch up with their extended family and do all that, they're out having a coffee and people come up and say, well done. That's all you need. Uh, the Logan Warriors says, Matty, it's a no-brainer second league team in New Zealand. If you can have two soccer teams in New Zealand, where soccer's probably the fourth most popular sport, then two league teams fit easy. Well, we discussed this when the expansion into Auckland or into New Zealand via Auckland for the A-League came about, and that news came about, and we brought it to you here on this program. And it's not just that. It's who they're getting involved as well. So... Perhaps League has missed an opportunity there to have a very big name in world sport to come on in. So to me, that's part of it as well. I I agree with you. I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. Bill Foley is the American who's now got the license to do that. And he's got the runs on the board, not just in in the bank, but runs on the board internationally. Maybe that's a bit of a missed opportunity for the NRL. There's... So much support there. I reckon they could get up and running a, a second team and have that rivalry there, no no problems. But there's one guy already invested in sport in New Zealand going forward, and he won't be for the short term anyway in rugby league. He'll be in soccer. Here's the news. 2AM Tommy's going to join us after this. Thank you, Vanessa. Uh, none for 28. Tasmania in reply to New South Wales first innings total of 224 at the SCG. Sheffield Shield day number two of that one. 2am Tommy is on the line as we continue our remoteness here in the world of SEM while they're building the mega studios and your office, obviously. Gee, there's a a bit going on, isn't it? And you triggered the discussion this morning, Tommy, when we were having a chat about Glenn Maxwell. You just said to me over the phone, mate, I just love him. You know, he's just, he just continually blows us away. 
if you think of your top three athletes on the Australian the Australian athletes on the world stage, which way would you go? Yeah, good morning, Maddie, and all the listeners out there. Yeah, good. It's a, been a great chat that we've been having so far this morning. I think I would lead to lean to probably Daniel Ricciardo one, Nick Kyrgios two, and David Warner three. And I know that that kind of goes in line with. And I know a lot of our listeners won't probably agree with this, but social media followings. But if you kind of look at those sports already, Daniel Ricciardo, especially in the United States, given the rise of Drive to Survive the last few years. He is, you know, one of the biggest stars of that show. He may not win every single um, Grand Prix, but as you know as well, Matty, and we've spoken about it time and time again on this on this program, he is just always um, getting clicks, getting views. He's out there, and um, persona is just amazing for the sport. So he'd be number one. Nick Kyrgios, you know, he hasn't played in a year, it seems like it, um, given his injuries, but he is one of the most entertaining talents in the tennis world, even though he hasn't won a slam, he's won a doubles, but made a final of Wimbledon a few years ago. But whether you hate him or you like him, um, people are going to stop and watch him. And that's what Nick Kyrgios does best. He gets the eyeballs on the sport. And then David Warner, again, similar to Nick Kyrgios, he's very divisive, um, whether you love him or you, whether you hate him. And he's grown a massive, massive following in India over the last few years. And he was kind of one of the players that catapulted short-form cricket, especially T20 cricket, into its popularity since its, since its um, birth. Him, along with, I think, probably guys like Chris Gale and some other West Indies players really paved the way for the growth in T20, and I think he's reaping those rewards now. So I think it would be Dan- Daniel Ricciardo, Nick Kyrgios, and David Warner, however you want to rank them. That would be my top three. Yeah, and the only piece missing out of all of that when you look at David Warner on a global stage is the fact that Daniel Ricciardo and Nick Kyrgios play a sport or compete in a sport that is across all continents. So they're they're massive in Europe, they're massive in North America, they're massive in Asia, they're massive in Australia because they go to those stops all the way. Um, Cricket doesn't. So the biggest piece missing out of that, obviously, is North America in particular. So it's it's really, really interesting how that would play out versus a – a Sam Kerr, and it, and it and it is an interesting exercise because you have to try and attach some numbers to it because the numbers will guide us. But to me, this is a this is a boots on the ground kind of research project. You know, it's like we need to spread a whole bunch of Aussies out across the world and just say, who says who's saying what to you in the coffee shop down there? Who's saying what when they hear your voice in a lift and they go, you're an Australian and they're a sport lover? That that's where you get the real answer. Yeah, and I think an important, important note with that, Matty, is when you mentioned Nick Kyrgios and Daniel Ricciardo. Daniel Ricciardo, I know it's kind of two-person tandem in F1, um, in Formula 1, but you look at tennis, you even look at golf back in the day, like you said, Greg Norman, they're individual sports, whereas David Warner is a star, but he's in a team. Nick Kyrgios is a star, he's on his own team. He is the, the leader in every single sense of the way, whereas David Warner's got to compete with the likes of Steve Smith, Glenn Maxwell, Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark on any given day or night when he's playing against India, England, South Africa, whoever. Whereas Daniel Ricciardo, I know he's got his teammates in F1, but you're still kind of, if you win, you win. You know what I mean? If Nick Kyrgios wins, Nick Kyrgios wins. Yeah. 100%. You're on your own. And then the golfers in the mix of that as well. I mean, Cameron Smith's, like, let's forget about what happened at the Australian PGA. Cameron Smith doesn't have as many social media followers by a long shot, but 
you know, he plays in every corner of the globe as well. And then there's the, the live factor, which would, whilst a lot of people say it's, you know, taking him off the radar of the main tour, which it has, still puts him back in the headlines as well. Really, really interesting chat. We've also seen a fair bit of news around in rugby league. I mean, it's it's well and truly the off-season. We know that. But clubs are starting to build their rosters and sign people and ex- more so extend people along the way. And I like what the boys said in the paper this morning. Canterbury's continued their big recruitment drive. Cronulla emerging as the new sleeping giant of the free agency market. So there's a bit of yin-yang here. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that, Maddie. But, however, I've got to... I, I want to pour... And some of our listeners have said this to the same extent this morning, but I want to pour some cold water on what Canterbury's doing so far. I really don't understand kind of their strategy in terms of their recruitment. In my opinion, they're just throwing you-know-what at the wall and seeing what sticks. That's my, that's my complete and honest review of what Phil Gould and their whole recruitment team's doing. They're just saying, all right, we'll sign you, we'll sign you, we'll sign you, we'll sign you, we'll sign you on low-risk deals, um, low-contract deals, only one to two years. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I understand that method of thinking from Gus and from the Bulldogs board and their recruitment, their retention team. But for me, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, you look at Stephen Crichton, spectacular signing. It's one of the best signings for 2024. I think we can all agree his rise in the last 18 months has have been phenomenal for um, Panthers, New South Wales and Samoa. I really like that signing. I like the signing of Josh Curran, which was done earlier this month when the Warriors gave him um, permission to um, seek a deal elsewhere. But apart from that, Matty, you look at some of the guys that they've signed and they're all kind of the same player. Drew Hutchison, Kurt Mann, Jamin Salmon, Blake Taff, Jake Turpin, they're all the same player in my opinion. Jamin Salmon, yeah, can play a bit of back row, a bit of second row, but Hutchison, Mann, Turpin, they're all really hooker, half utilities. And then you throw in Connor Tracy, he's another um, backline utility, same with Blake Taff. And then you've got Pawasa Farmasili, who's a journeyman already at the NRL. He's played for the Dragons, the Roosters, the Warriors and the Dolphins. Um, I really just don't understand the signings that the Bulldogs have made. I just think they're throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, seeing what hopefully works. They've already had some massive, massive turnover in their squad the last few years. And I just honestly don't think it's working for the moment. Like I, I, I like Crichton, the signing of Crichton, and I like the signing of Josh Curran. And again, they've got another big risk with Bronson Cherry. He hasn't played in the NRL since in four years for that doping ban. And he signed a two-year deal with them starting next season. So that, he's a massive, massive risk again. One, one thing I want, to, I want to point to is with Matt Burden. In my opinion, these signings that they've made, is, it's, not a great signing. it's not a great sign if I'm Matt Burden. Now, he, re, he recently signed a long-term extension to the end of 2027. And I think it was last week he recently spoke to the media about pressure being put on him in regards to the harm. So let's have a listen to what Matt Burden had to say courtesy of Channel 9 last week. I spoke to the coach yesterday and he's just talking about the position and uh, I'm just working my backside off to, to play 5-8. Toby Sexton, I think at the moment, he's showing really good signs and we've had some good footy there at the back end of the year, so he's training the house down and uh, we've got a good good combo there. I think last year, there's stages in the game where I needed to stand up and didn't really provide that, so I think this year if I can work on them little areas then it's going to help the team. So if I'm Matt Burden and I, and I see the signings of Drew Hutchison, Kurt Mann, Jamin Salmon and Blake Taff, guys, and Jake Turbin, five guys there who can all play in the halves, 
I'm looking over my shoulder being going, hang on, you signed me here to play five eight. I just re-signed here till the end of 2027. Why are you signing all these halves utilities? Are you trying to tell me something? We've had all these reports the last month saying they could potentially move Matt Byrne into the centres. He's played centre for the Blues. He won a premiership for the Panthers at left centre back in 2021. He's your biggest, he's your biggest meal ticket there at the Dogs. Is he a half or is he a centre? You've got to make your mind up because you've just signed five guys who are going to put pressure on his own position there. I don't get it. Well, they answered the question, do they want him or not? They signed him till 2027. So the positional part of that, there should be pressure on players and there should be backup on players as well. So I understand what you're saying in that regard, but you know where, where he wants to play versus where they want him to play. But they've shown their hand in terms of how long they want Matt Burton to be at the Bulldogs. And it's a longer deal than the names that you've just mentioned as well. So... He's there on a long-term deal. He should be the top dog, so to speak, and that should be the position that he's in, and they should be trying to remove him from his position. That that adds to healthy competition. And, and I reckon, I know what you're saying about throwing it out there and throwing it against the wall. <laughs> I think that's a very generalised view on the amount of science slash thought process that goes behind it. I, don't, I certainly cannot see Phil Gould and Cameron Serraldo, for instance, just sitting around going, Wee, let's pick a player Oprah-style. But, but again, why just sign all these? Again, I think they're just, I think they're just trying to save the team here. I just, I don't understand the constant signings of utilities. I and really that's been don't the question, get it. as you said, mate. That's been the question from a lot of our supporters and a lot of bulldog supporters in particular. A lot of our listeners, I should say, and a lot of bulldog supporters in particular. So that that's been the absolute question around of all of this. Why? 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 The names are there. The explanation alongside it is is that part of it. Not sure. Nice work. I'll get to those texts. If you got your thoughts on that, oh four five seven seven three six seven three six or one three hundred oh one eleven seventy here on SEN. Right, on, let's go straight to the phone lines. One three hundred oh one eleven seventy. Paul in Newcastle is on the line. G'day, Paul. Your thoughts around what we we're just discussing, especially around the Bulldogs, mate. Yeah, right. Look up. I just, I would rather have a Blake Pass at my club, South Sydney, than a Latrell Mitchell. I sort of kind of get what their policy is. We almost won a comp with Blake Taff at the back. It was only one pass that, <coughs> that went wrong. <coughs> oh, pardon me. One pass went wrong. If, uh, <coughs> if that pass against Penrith goes right, we win a comp. Latrell, he's, he's a good signing. Blake Taff is a very good signing, <coughs> oh, I reckon. Until you're right, mate. You're still with us. <laughs> uh, but look, he's a good he's a good signing until the end of 2025. I don't think there's any question about that for the doggies. And there are a lot of people who who didn't want him to leave the bunnies. Um, and in your opinion, that's the way that it should have panned out. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. Mate. I'll let you grab swig a drink, mate. But thank you for calling. Always uh, appreciate your thoughts. Just Paul's in Newcastle or is from Newcastle and I've been keeping you up to date with what's been happening with supercars in Newcastle. So we've had the event there in 2017, 2018, 2019 and, and then this year. Well, a vote last night at the council has effectively or will effectively kill off any chance that there'll be a supercars street race in Newcastle probably ever again. And the vote has got nothing to do with the race itself. It's about restoration works beginning on the east end of Newcastle. 
which kind of goes against the way that the council were pinning the blame on supercars and the government for a failure to renew the deal for 2024 and beyond. All three parties needed to agree, but the council claimed that community consultation had only been tied to a five-year extension of the event as opposed to a one-year deal. It doesn't matter anymore because they've now decided to do restoration works on the east end, which will render the course itself unusable. They won't be able to do it. There was one uh, councillor who voted against the restoration works, Callum Pull, and he said the Newcastle 500 was without a doubt the biggest event we ever had and in my view is something that we should be working very hard to return as soon as possible. He doesn't see the need to permanently kill it off when both the state government and supercars left the door open. But in this manner, when you look at it, the council want to do work at that part and that'll put an end to it. And they've also now saying the Deputy Mayor Declan Clausen has said Newcastle should instead be supporting a supercars race being established in the Hunter region. So head towards the wine country, 500. I'm not really sure how that one's going to work out. <laughs> um, but that's sort of on the list as well. But either way, I think we can draw a line unless something else changes through the future of the Newcastle 500 street race. And when we raised this last week, we had Newcastle residents ring us saying it's a pain in the neck and we didn't, didn't do anything. And there were others that said it was great. I was there when it started um, and I thought it was a good event. I don't live in Newcastle, but I thought it was a good event. And if they're going to, off the back of all of this, do work on the East End, then so be it. Uh, in terms of a wine country 500, that's really the first that I've sort of heard about that, but I'll do some digging around Cessnock. Um, is that where they need to go? It makes it easier to do something like that in terms of not getting in the way of residents and businesses and shutting down streets and all that kind of stuff. But is it the right venue? I'm not sure. So that's where that one is at. Matty, fully agree with Tommy Reed, the dog signings. Facts are, to be successful in the NRL, you need a great half and a great big bopper up front. You can't win a comp without these ingredients. Dogs will go well in the State Cup, though, says Matt. And I know that you've sent through a few of those. Matty, do you think a lot of Davey Warner's followers are from India? Sorry if I've missed it already, but I reckon a lot would follow him from there. Yes, no doubt. Have a look at the following of Coley, etc. Um, yeah, absolutely, and we discussed that too. Rooster Man says, that sucks. I've been twice to Newcastle. The race was awesome. Yeah, I don't think we're going again, Rooster Man. I think we can... Unfortunately, put a line through that one. 0457 736 736. Uh, we'll take our final break. We'll come back and wrap it up before handing over to Jimmy Smith. And, of course, the run home boys are still at Wahlburgers. Well, they do go home, but then they're going back. So they continue to broadcast throughout the course of this week down there at Circular Quay. If you're in the area, drop in and see Joel and Fletch. Back after this to wrap it up. That's it, folks. We are done for the day. New South Wales going ballistic. Well, Jackson Bird's going ballistic out there at uh, the SCG. He's taken three wickets. They are three for 33, Tasmania, in reply to New South Wales' first innings total of 224. So Jackson Bird has put down six overs. He's taken three wickets for 12 runs. He's removed the top three. Jordan Silk and Jake Doran are currently in. So Jimmy Smith will keep you across that one. Harry Garside's going to join him live from the Solomon Islands. And, of course, the run home this afternoon. The boys will have Bozza 
and Mark Leishman as part of the show. So keep it locked on SEN. Have yourselves a great day. Stay nice and dry if you can around Sydney. And we'll do it all again tomorrow morning from 9 o'clock. Thanks for your company, everybody. Bye for now.